Luke writes, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold... You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Father, I feel like our corporate prayer should be this morning, like the man who ran to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. So, Father, remove unbelief from us this morning, and through the power of your Spirit, replace it with God-honoring, God-glorifying belief. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you watch the Hallmark Channel, which at my house has been on seemingly non-stop if you watch the Hallmark Channel you would think that Christmas time is always a time for miracles and there's some truth to that as we saw last week and as we'll see from our text in front of us here this morning uh, the first Christmas was a definitely a time for miracles but the reality is for many people Christmas time, as well as the rest of the year, we find ourselves in situations and circumstances that try our faith and call us to believe God in spite of those circumstances and situations that we are experiencing at that moment. Now, last week I pointed out that Luke wrote of the unbelief of Zechariah so that with the perspective of time, but more importantly with the testimony of Scripture, we would be able to shed our unbelief and go on to embrace belief. Luke writes as a historian so that our faith will be grounded in the historical record of God's activity in the past. And Luke continues that pattern in the text before us this morning. He records the account of a young girl named Mary who was used by God in a truly, once-in-a-history, miraculous way. Now, there, I do need to offer a word of caution. It's very easy to approach the accounts around the incarnation, around the birth of Christ, around the Christmas story, and to completely miss the point. It's easy to take a text such as the one we're going to look at this morning and just miss the boat. 
Now, I say that because it's easy to take the Christmas story and we twist it to such a degree that the, story, the Christmas story comes out and it's all about ourselves. For instance, it would be very easy to read the account of Mary here and see the qualities. Unadmittedly, uh, I mean, admittedly, there are many great qualities that we see in Mary. So it would be very easy for us to take those qualities and use them as the basis to make her the hero of the story. And then I, as pastor, gets up and says, says, hey, look at Mary, be just like Mary. But as I remind you last week, the Bible is God's story. The Bible is the telling of the activity of God. The Bible is the recorded history of how God works in history to achieve his eternal plans and purposes. The Bible is the written record of how God is di directing the affairs of mankind to bring glory to himself through the salvation of ruined sinners. As John MacArthur says, there is nothing man-made about the Christmas story. So therefore, when we come to a text as we have before us this morning, we do see how God uses individuals. And in this instance, we see how God used the most unlikely of individuals to accomplish his will. But let me assure you, Mary is not the hero of the story. In fact, Mary needed to be rescued by a hero. God is the hero of the story. Say, well, why did Mary need a hero? The same reason that you and I need a hero. Because we are in imminent danger. We are dealing with, facing, struggling with an insurmountable problem that only God can solve. We are in a problem of our own making, while at the same time we are incapable of extracting ourselves from the mess we have made for ourselves. So what we have is an impossible situation solved in the most improbable way. Now, I don't totally want to discount the role that Mary plays in this account because there are lessons to be learned from Mary. Mary teaches us how to respond to God when he works in our lives and places us in circumstances over which we have no control. Can anybody identify with that? Mary teaches us how God views us. Mary teaches us how God can work through us. Mary teaches us how we can humbly submit to God regardless. Now mark this. How we can humbly submit to God regardless of what he is choosing to take us through. Therefore, as we walk through the story of God's activity in the life of this young girl named Mary, I believe it would be so helpful for us, for each one of us, to ask ourselves this question. If God was able to give Mary the strength to endure, again, not a once-in-a-lifetime event, but a once-in-history event, if God was able to give Mary the strength to endure that, what could God give you the strength to do? What could we do as a church through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit? Listen, Luke did not write 
to give you a warm, fuzzy feeling at Christmas. Luke wrote so that you would what? Believe. Believe in the power of God. Draw on the strength and the power of God so that regardless of the circumstances of your life, you can endure. Well, the details of the story are pretty familiar to most of us, if not all of us. Gabriel, whom we were introduced to last week, has been summoned once again by God to deliver another birth announcement. Now, this time, instead of being sent to an elderly priest and his wife, he is given a different set of instructions, and he's told to go to a young girl that was probably between the ages of 12 and 14. And Luke, again, he writes with the precision of a historian, and he adds this important detail. He describes her as a virgin, meaning she is never engaged in any kind of physical relations with a man. Now, she is in a relationship with a man, a man named Joseph. And in that culture, a young man and a young woman uh, would have something like a year-long engagement. That was the betrothal period. And it was a period of time that each one of them were given the opportunity to prove their loyalty and their fidelity to one another. It was a period of time where they were to remain pure, and even though they were not technically married, if either one of them strayed and were unfaithful, it was considered an act of adultery. So it is to this young virgin girl that the angel Gabriel appears. Now Luke gives us another time frame, another point of reference, if you will, as to when he appeared to Mary, he says that the angel came in the sixth month. What's he referring to? He's referring to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So one day as Mary is going about her daily routine, whatever that may have been, Gabriel comes to her and he greets her. Now there's a little bit of a difference here between the way that Gabriel showed up with Zechariah and the way he appears to Mary. If you remember back to when Gabriel uh, appeared to Zechariah in the temple, he just showed up, but he, the text doesn't say that he said anything to Zechariah until after Zechariah saw him, until after Zechariah saw him standing by the altar. But in this case, we get the sense that as soon as he appears to Mary, as soon as he shows up to Mary, he immediately speaks to her, and he greets Mary by saying to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, one of the tragedies about our familiar, familiarity with the Christmas story is we really miss the weight and the significance of what is being said here. And the significance of what Gabriel says to Mary can only be properly understood in light of who the greeting was given to. Remember, it was given to Mary, a young girl of no special significance, who lived in a town of no special significance. Ken Hughes said that Gabriel comes to this young girl who is a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. She was not from royalty. She was not from wealth. She was not from a powerful family. She truly was the lowliest of the low. But yet, God sends his angel to her and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And it was to this nobody that Gabriel was about to give the greatest, the greatest honor, the greatest announcement that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah, that she was going to give birth to Jesus, who would be the salvation, not only of Israel, 
but of people of every nationality. So Gabriel says, Mary, you're a favored one. I say, well, what does that mean? A favored one means to experience from the hand of God undeserved kindness. And you think about Mary. She had nothing to give to God to earn this favor. She had nothing to give to God to commend her to God so that he was in some way obligated to give her favor. But guess what? We're just like Mary. We have nothing to commend ourselves to God so that he shows us favor. If you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, you have something in common with Mary. You too are a favored one. Through Christ, God the Father shows us undeserved kindness. And the first thing that we see here is that Mary teaches us that God's grace is for the lowly, that God's grace is for the least among us. What did Paul say? Hey, if you notice, uh, not many mighty, not many noble, not, uh, not too many of the political ruling classes called. No, it's the lowly. God gives grace to the lowly. And that's exactly what we see in the life of Mary. God giving grace to the lowly. And when God blesses us, he does so not based upon our merit. If you think you deserve God's favor, you have yet to experience God's favor. If you think you deserve God's grace, you have no understanding of grace nor of yourself. God gives us favor. He blesses us with grace because he's loving and kind and gracious. So how did Mary respond here? Well, like Zacharias, she was troubled by the appearance of Gabriel. I mean, that is the only right response here. But she did something that Zachariah didn't. And I find this so interesting. Here we have this young, early teenage girl contrasted with Zachariah, the, the old priest. And Zachariah responded with really unbelief, but she doesn't do that. She keeps her wits about her. And Luke says she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, that is so unlike most teenage girls that I've had experience with, and I've raised two of them. Sorry, Amanda. <laughs> Many times, their first reaction to any kind of news isn't to stop and think it through. <laughs> right? But that's exactly what she did. She was trying to understand what was happening. Remember, there had been no open revelation to the nation of Israel for the past 400 years. And at this point, she had no idea that Gabriel, six months earlier, had appeared to Zechariah. She didn't know that. All she knew at this point was that for the last four centuries, there had been no word from heaven. Now, all of a sudden, there is Gabriel standing in front of her. And he tells her that, hey, God is with you. And Gabriel, just as he did with Zechariah, he offers her words of assurance. He tells her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, this favor is different from being a favored one. Remember, the favored one is one who has received undeserved kindness from God. But to find favor with God is to be the recipient of God's undeserved grace. 
Gabriel wanted her to know, Gabriel wanted her to understand that she had nothing to fear. Believer, if you are in Christ, as Todd read this morning, you have nothing to fear. Say, we live in a very scary world. We live amongst very uncertain times. I know that. I realize that. I'm old enough to have lived through way too many changes for the worse and not the better. But we have nothing to fear. And what was true for Mary is true for all of us as God's children. As I said last week, let's not sugarcoat these stories just because it's Christmas time. Life was about to become very difficult for Mary. I can't even imagine what she was about to experience, not just for the next nine months, but for the rest of her life. She's about to enter into a lifetime of trials, endless gossip and innuendo. She would always have to listen to those who thought that she was immoral and that her son was illegitimate. And I asked myself, how, how was she able to cope? How was she able to endure what she was about to go through? How would she be able to bear it? How could she endure this and still experience joy in her life? So how did Mary do that? I believe it was through the knowledge. Don't discount this. It was through the knowledge that she was favored by God and that God had shown favor to her. And in spite of that incredible good news, she was able to handle and deal with the rest of the ugliness of her life. Because ultimately, that's what matters. Your relationship with God. So you and I have to fight unbelief. We have to silence the whispers of our own conscience. We have to shut down the innuendo of Satan as he tells us time and time again, surely, surely you can't be one of God's children. If you're one of God's children, why are you suffering the way that you are? If you're one of God's children, why are you being, having to endure this? If you're one of God's children, boy, I'm not so sure I'd want to be one of God's children if this way he treats his children, if this, if this is the way he expresses his love to us. No, you know what you have to do? You have to fight the unbelief. And as Piper says, fight for what? Joy. It's there, but it's not easily won. The problem in our society and our culture is we want everything quick and easy. We want drive up joy. Right? We're not willing to fight for it. Fight for joy. Call to mind that you're highly favored in Christ and that in Christ you have been shown mercy and grace. But despite Gabriel's assurance, Mary was still troubled and therefore he didn't keep Mary waiting. He didn't leave her hanging. He immediately makes to her the greatest announcement that could ever be made. Preachers like hyperbole. This is not hyperbole. This was truly the greatest announcement 
that has ever been made and will ever be made. And I pray, again, that we do not let our familiarity with these stories rob us of their significance and rob us of their joy. Because Gabriel is about to give to her and to us the greatest news that we could ever hear. Look at verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and we will call the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary, you are going to have a child, and he's not just any child. His name will be called Jesus, which means God. God saves go to Matthew he is going to save his people from their sins and notice as he said this child will be great not he's going to grow up and be great in the womb he's great he's always going to be great throughout his life in his pre-incarnate state he was great in his incarnation he was great in the womb he was great in his exaltation in his intercession in his everlasting mercy and grace he's great he's great Remember, Gabriel told Zechariah that his son would be great before the Lord. But when we see Gabriel saying this to Mary, that he would be great, no strings attached, no qualifications. He's great in every way. Everything about Jesus would be great. One commentator writes this in the Old Testament. Whenever this word is used without qualification, the word great, it almost always refers to God himself. God's wisdom is great. His works are great. His power is great. His mercy is great. So great is God's uh, greatness that he alone deserves to be called great. By saying that, Jesus would be great. Therefore, Gabriel was testifying to the deity of Jesus. No one is greater than he. And if you are in Christ, he's your friend. Jesus is great in wisdom, great in power, great in love, and great in the majesty of his divine being. His greatness is the greatness of God. But not only would he be great, he would be a great king. He would sit on the throne of King David, and he says that he would rule over the house of Jacob, and that his kingdom over which he would rule would be an eternal kingdom. This was no ordinary child. There was nothing ordinary about Jesus. Especially how he came into the world. So how did Mary respond? Well, she responded. Let me give you two words she responded in belief, and she responded with belief. In belief and with belief. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, with the unbelief of Zachariah still fresh in our minds, we may think that she's responding the same way, but trust me, she isn't. The response of Zachariah was, how shall I know this? That was a response of doubt, not trust. That was a response of unbelief, not belief. But Mary has no doubt that what Gabriel has said to her is going to happen. All she wants to know is, how is it going to happen? So what Gabriel says next may be some of the most sublime words in Scripture because they're both an explanation and a comfort they were more than words just explaining how this was going to happen they were words of tremendous comfort both for her and for all of God's children look at verse 35 
The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Do you see what Gabriel has done? Zechariah looked to himself, didn't he? How will this be? I'm an old man, and Elizabeth's been racking up the bills with wrinkle cream. You all seem to like that. But that's not what Mary doesn't think in those terms. He points her right back to God. He never even hints for her to look at herself. He points her back to God. He tells her that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. But more than that, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, if we get to the uh, Mary's Magnificent uh, next week, we will see that it's very evident that she has a working, a good working knowledge of the Old Testament. Therefore, when she hears the words, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, her mind immediately will be drawn back to the Old Testament Scriptures. See, God was referred to in the Old Testament by the title, the Most High, a title that depicted the sovereignty and the power of God. Most High was the omnipotent ruler of heaven and earth. So it was by the working of the Holy Spirit through the power of the Most High God, maker and ruler of heaven and earth, that she would conceive this child, the holy child of God. And you know what? That was enough for her. Listen, the virgin birth is mysterious. The virgin birth we cannot fully understand. But do we fully understand how any baby is born? We understand the mechanics but the imparting of, of life, that is a mystery. Yet we have evidence of it all around. I'm not a hologram. I'm real. I'm flesh and blood and fat. This is me. Okay. I'm alive. I don't remember becoming alive. But I know I'm alive because I'm here. Mysterious, yes. Can we believe it? Yes. Why? Because of the power of God. And we mustn't downplay the role of the Holy Spirit. He is constantly at work. He was at work in creation. He was at work in the incarnation. And he's at work today. If you are a believer, the Holy Spirit has worked in your life, is working in your life, and will continue to work in your life. Perhaps you're an unbeliever. You're not yet in Christ. It very well could be that the Holy Spirit is working in your life right now, drawing you to Christ. See? Philip Reich in his commentary on Luke 1 says this, this language echoes the Old Testament and reminds us that the Holy Spirit has been actively involved in everything that God has ever done. The Spirit was present at creation when he overshadowed the waters of the earth. The Spirit was there at the Exodus when he overshadowed the tabernacle in a cloud of glory. Later, the Spirit would overshadow Jesus, anointing him for his earthly ministry. It was by the Spirit that Jesus made atonement for our sins, and by the Spirit that he was raised from the dead. Then Jesus sent the Spirit to overshadow the church. It is by the power of his presence that we serve Christ today. The Holy Spirit has been overshadowing God's people from the very beginning, working with the Father and the Son for our salvation. I believe the Holy Spirit is overshadowing us, us, here today. 
Now, just in case Mary needed a little bit of a boost, we may say, for her belief in what Gabriel was saying, you know what he did? He gave her, now God doesn't always do this, but in this case he did, he gave her a sign that could be verified. Say, what was the sign? He said, hey, your relative Elizabeth, you know, the, the lady that was well past the age of bearing children, the one who was barren all of her life, guess what? She is six months pregnant. Now, Gabriel didn't suggest that she go see her, but he planted the seed, I'm sure. Hey, let me go see her. See? So let's think this through because you all are such smart people. What Mary has just heard, no one else had ever heard before, and no one else has ever heard since. A virgin was going to give birth not just to a son, but to the Son of God. And Mary, just so you know for sure that what I said is true, you can pay a visit to Elizabeth, and by the time you get there, you're going to be able to notice that she's expecting a child of her own. And then comes the word that really seals the deal for nothing, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. There's your answer, Mary. Nothing will be impossible with God. Now, folks, if God was capable of making a virgin give birth, then surely he is capable of handling whatever difficulties we find ourselves facing. J.C. Ryle, admittedly with some rather clunky language, makes an impressive statement. He said this, a hearty reception, meaning a wholehearted reception of this great principle. What great principle? For nothing will be impossible with God. A hearty reception of this great principle is of immense importance to our own inward peace. Let that sink in. For nothing will be impossible with God. And a hearty reception of this great principle is of immense importance to our own inward peace. You're not fighting alone. You're not traveling alone. You're not in this alone. At this juncture, I think it'd be helpful if we would all ask ourselves, what is it in your life that right now seems impossible? I dare say if I would poll everybody in the room, most of us would say, you know, I've got this going on that just seems impossible. I'm facing this situation just seems impossible. Perhaps, I think of Ben and Victoria and the cycle of sickness. We're probably thinking, will these kids ever get well? Probably thinking, will I ever get a full night's sleep again? How about the struggling believer? who wanders to themselves, will I ever be rid of this sin that I'm so ashamed of? To the discouraged, you ask yourself, will I ever have joy again? Will my career ever go anyplace? Will my ministry ever amount to anything? Will the one I've been praying for, for their salvation, will they ever come to Christ? 
Will my loved one who is sick and struggling, or perhaps yourself, will they ever experience healing? I can't give you a specific answer. I can't say to you, yay or nay, but I can say to you with full confidence that nothing will be impossible for God. Question is, do you believe this? I don't mean the kind of belief where you sit in church on Sunday morning and the old boy up front says something that you know that you, that's probably true and that you probably should believe. And so like bobbleheads, we, yeah, I believe it. No, I mean the kind of belief in the midst of the darkness that you can still believe it. In the midst of your trouble, you can still believe it. In the midst of your trials, you can still believe it. In the bottom of the pit, you can still believe it. Do you believe this? How about us as a church? Do we believe this? Do we as a church believe that with God nothing will be impossible? If we don't, let's pack up and go home. I don't do this because I like to stand in front of people. In fact, if you know me, I, I prefer not to stand in front of people. Why do we do this? Why do we exist as a church? Hopefully it's because we believe that with, with God nothing will be impossible. Say, we live in Berea. Everybody thinks it's a sweet little town. It's a progressive hellhole. But with God, nothing will be impossible. Now what Mary says next should reflect our attitude as believers. Look at verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am, a ser I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And I love the way Luke just says this, and the angel departed from her. It's like Gabriel said, enough said, heard all I need to hear, I'm out of here. <laughs> he didn't have to stick around and have to, to, to uh, uh, manipulate her or try and get her to say that. One like Zachariah where he had to shut his mouth for nine months in order to get him to believe it. Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I'm out of here. Bye. Back to heaven. You know what that was? That was Mary's confession of faith, and I pray that that is your confession of faith as well. And I pray that that is our church's confession of faith. Behold, we're the servant of the Lord. Let it be to us according to your word. Belief, submission, trust, confidence. Mary displayed all of those in her response. Know this, know this, know this. This isn't some positive thinking claptrap. This was a belief in the word of God that altered her life forever. And that's what believing in the word of God does. It'll change your life forever. Do you believe this? Riken says, all she needed to know was what God wanted her to do. Once she knew that was enough for her, she was ready to do it. Oh, that we would be Mary. Think about how rare it is to find someone who's willing to trust God for the impossible and then obey him without hesitation or qualification. I have had some great role models in my life. My dad, for one. My dad, when I was in sixth grade, 
was given a death sentence and said he'll be dead in six months. My dad lived to be 76 years old. Why? With God, nothing will be impossible. At Christmas time, my mind always goes back to that because we thought it was our last Christmas with Dad. And there were 40 more to come. I think of my pastor. God gave him a burden to print the scriptures and to take them around the world. And to date, he's printed millions and millions and millions of scriptures. He's raised millions and millions and millions of dollars. I could take you to my home church to the print shop and show you a printing press that can go through tractor trailer loads of paper every day. Why? With God, nothing will be impossible. Oh, our thoughts of God are way too small. Our plans are way too small. But again, back to, you know, we, it's hard to find somebody who will obey without hesitation or qualification. You think about even some of the great heroes of the faith. They tried to wiggle out of doing what God said. God came to Moses and said, hey, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to deliver the message to Pharaoh. And what Moses said, wait a minute, my mouth's full of marbles. I, I can't speak eloquently. I'll stumble and bumble around, and this is just going to be a big joke. He said, okay, send, I'll let Aaron go with you. We have no recorded instance of Aaron ever saying a word. How about Gideon? If there's ever a reluctant hero, it was Gideon. He did everything that he could, including a flip-flopping fleece, to get out of doing what God asked him to do. And he said, I am the weakest man. I mean, how many guys would say this? This guy really wanted off the hook. I'm the weakest man in the weakest tribe of Israel. Oh, you're a, you're a real stud, Gideon. <laughs> or how about Jeremiah? He said he was too young for the job, but he got the job done, didn't he? Mary was a woman of great faith. She understood that once we know what God wants us to do, any delay is a sign of unbelief. Father, I believe. Help my unbelief. Amen.